Welcome. Uh, this is the second part of the anatomy of the heart. This is about the coronary circulation and conduction system. Um, I'm pleased to announce that uh, there are going to be a series of handbooks uh, related to these podcasts. Uh, they'll be for each of the regions, the head and neck, the thorax, the upper and lower limbs, the abdomen, pelvis, and also a separate uh, book on uh, neurology and um, the brain and spinal cord and the back. Um, these, I think the first of these is likely to appear um, uh, in all of the bookstores, Amazon and the others, uh, probably sometime towards the middle or end of next year, and then they'll appear annually, but we've signed a contract for these. They're interesting because they include a number of line drawings which we want the readers to see if they can reproduce, because the theory is that if you can draw it, you really can understand it. So it's a, a different way of teaching, but it's based on these uh, podcasts, so that's something to look out for. We'd appreciate also that for those who are contributing, that they can continue to do so through patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, anatopod all in capital letters, and we appreciate everything to continue with these ongoing podcasts. I think that the course is going to extend for another uh, two years or so before we look at restarting it and revamping it. So let's get on to the coronary circulation. Um there are two arteries which supply the heart muscle, whereas although there are companion veins, a bit like the brain, these arteries and veins don't strictly follow one another. The veins don't strictly follow the arterial system. The right coronary artery arises from the anterior aortic sinus of Valsalva at the root of the ascending aorta. And if you examine a heart in situ, in its normal sternocostal orientation, then you'll see the right coronary artery running vertically down the atrioventricular groove between the right auricular appendage, and uh, that's to the right, and then to the left, the infundibulum of the right ventricle. Now, if you trace the artery along, now it, it runs over the inferior border of the heart and then continues posteriorly into the posterior interventricular grooves so that naturally we would then call it there the posterior interventricular artery. So here at least in theory there is a microanastomosis with the terminal components of the left coronary. Now if you trace the right coronary higher up you'll see that it supplies the right atrium and the right ventricle the atrioventricular septum and part of the left ventricle, as well as the conduction system. There is a right conus artery which runs in front to the infundibulum, the area also called the conus arteriosus, or the outflow tract of the right ventricle. And there's also here an anastomosis between that little right conus artery and a similar left conus artery that comes from the left main coronary artery. Now, the right coronary artery continues to supply anterior ventricular arteries, or really you could call them sternocostal branches, and then the important marginal artery, which is its largest branch running along the inferior margin that we 
just looked at before and which runs towards the apex of the heart. Now that artery is accompanied by the small cardiac vein, so you may be able to see that in prosected specimens or in the dissections that uh, you're doing. The posterior branches here supply part of the diaphragmatic part of the right ventricle. And there are also, as I've said, some atrial branches to the anterior and lateral part of the right atrium, and even a posterior supply here, not only to the right atrium, but also to a bit of the left atrium. That's difficult to trace, but it's interesting that that's a little left atrial branch from the right coronary artery. There is a separable artery uh, to the sinoatrial node. Sometimes it comes directly from the aortic sinus, but this is just below the entrance of the SVC within the right coronary artery system. Then there's an artery, as I've said, also supplying the diaphragmatic surface of the right ventricle and left ventricle, but not going as far as the apex. There's a septal branch also, which we can't see, obviously, uh, that is described going to the atrioventricular node. And in about 10% of cases, the left coronary artery, as we know, supplies the atrioventricular node, and in 35% of cases, the sinoatrial node. The apex of the heart is supplied by the left coronary artery through its anterior interventricular artery, and the posterior interventricular artery is accompanied, if you look at the back of the heart, by the middle cardiac vein. We'll expand on this a little bit in a second. Now, the left coronary artery is the larger one, and it arises from the left posterior aortic sinus, and it passes just within the visual field between the pulmonary infundibulum and the left atrial appendage, and it divides, as we know, into its two terminal branches as the anterior interventricular branch, the cardiologists like to call that the left anterior descending, or the LAD, and the second artery there is that circumflex artery. So be reminded that the aortic root, of course, is an anterior and two posterior sinuses, the sinuses of Valsalva, the left posterior giving rise to the left coronary artery, and the right posterior sinus being a non-coronary sinus. So they're a little different. The left coronary artery branches are, of course, as I've said already, the anterior interventricular artery, and that's accompanied by the great cardiac vein. And where that passes around the apex where it ends, it anastomoses with some of the branches of the right coronary artery in that posterior interventricular groove, as we've already said, a kind of microanastomotic collateral network. The artery supplying the right ventricle and the left ventricle and the anterior interventricular septum is this LAD, which makes it a fairly critical artery. There's also, as I mentioned before, the left conus artery to the pulmonary conus, the anterior and posterior ventricular branches which supply the left ventricle and the atria, uh, an atrial branch really supplying most of the left atrium. And then there's the so-called left diagonal and obtuse marginal arteries, which are specialised ventricular branches. In addition, we mentioned the circumflex artery, which winds around the heart, and it gives rise to anterior and posterior ventricular branches to the left ventricle, a little bit also up to the left atrium. And as we've said, there's the left marginal, which supplies the left margin of the left ventricle out to the apex.
Um, now, that can be a, a circumflex branch usually, but sometimes the, it can come directly off the main left coronary artery. So that's uh, um, a possibility. Now, if the left coronary artery is to supply the sinoatrial node, the branch to that is actually given off fairly quickly, and it runs behind the ascending aorta, but above the superior left pulmonary vein. So it runs around the back of the heart in that anomaly. So these are the standard configurations. In summary, just to repeat that in 10% of cases, the posterior interventricular artery is a branch of the left coronary artery, and that's the circumstance of so-called left dominance. Most of the septum is supplied by the LAD, that's the interventricular septum, but the posterior part of it may be supplied by the posterior interventricular artery, wherever that comes from. There's some microanastomosis, as I've said, between the posterior interventricular and the circumflex, as well as around the conus, uh, and some intraventricular kind of interventricular septum anastomotic networks. But there's no effective anastomosis, although it's described in the books, with other arteries in the region, such as the pericardiophrenic, the internal thoracic or the bronchioles. The SA node, the AV node and the AV bundle are, as I've said, usually supplied by the right coronary. Right bundle branch block is then part of left coronary artery supply. Left bundle branch block is part of both right and left coronary artery supply. Coronary artery anomalies can, of course, occur, and these could be divisible as those of abnormal origin of the coronary arteries, which have become recognised with the widespread use of echocardiography. And we can consider anomalies of origin, such as anomalous pulmonary origin or of the right and left and circumflex, anomalies of aortic origin, where, for example, the left coronary artery comes from the right sinus and vice versa, and including also these rare anomalies, single coronary artery, inverted coronaries, congenital atresia of the left main artery, anomalies, of course, of myocardial bridging and coronary aneurysms, and various anomalies of termination uh, and stenoses. Um, other common possible findings include trifurcation of the left main artery with what's called a ramus intermedius. In about 20% of cases, it distributes across a variable portion of the lateral wall of the left ventricle. And some of these things are very important, uh, not just sort of randomly to talk about them, but the nature of the takeoff of these arteries affects cardiac catheterization. So they've got very important clinical significance. There's sometimes the so-called shepherd's crook anomaly in the right coronary artery, which can make it very difficult to cannulate the ostium of the right coronary artery. And these are a combination of what we think of as anatomical and radiological anatomical anomalies. The origin of the main epicardial arteries also shows some variability, an acute takeoff angle, for example, really an angle between the proximal coronary artery and the aortic wall, which is less than 45 degrees, 
is pretty uncommon. It's reported in about 2% of people. Or there can be a high takeoff that's a coronary ostium that's over about a centimetre above the uh, junction of either the left main or more often the right coronary artery. Generally considered a benign variant, but it certainly, as I've said, can complicate percutaneous coronary interventions. And sometimes a PCI, a percutaneous coronary intervention of the right coronary artery may be more complex when there is that shepherd's crook morphology characterised by a, a tortuous and higher course of the proxal segment of the vessel and classified as a, a really as a normal variant found in about 5% of people. So there are these anomalies of origin. We can think of anomalous pulmonary origin of the coronaries, anomalous aortic origin of the coronaries, and congenital atresia of the left main. There are anomalies of their course, as I've said, myocardial, the so-called coronary bridging, coronary aneurysms, and anomalies of the termination of the arteries, a coronary arteriovenous fistula, which can be congenital or acquired, and coronary stenosis, which can be congenital. Now, I wanted to turn our attention to the coronary veins and the venous drainage. And as I've stated, there, are, there is some venous distribution that follows the main arteries, but the system itself is developmentally different. Firstly, in general terms, the blood of the heart drains into the right atrium, either directly or via the coronary sinus. And the latter drains most of the heart. If you turn a heart over now... Um, if you have one, you'll see the coronary sinus lying horizontally in the posterior atrioventricular groove, and it's very large, and strictly it sits in the coronary sulcus, and it forms from that great cardiac vein as, uh, uh, as, uh, as tributaries. It accepts the great cardiac vein, so really what forms it is a tributary, by definition, the middle cardiac veins, which we briefly mentioned, the small cardiac vein, uh, veins, and the vein called the oblique vein of Marshall, which runs down from the left atrium. It's usually fairly obvious if you're looking at the back of the heart. The coronary sinus runs all the way along the bottom of the left atrium, and it empties into the right atrium to the left and inferior to the inferior vena cable opening. And you can see that in an opened right atrium as well. And the coronary sinus itself is often guarded by a valve, the so-called Thebesian valve. And sometimes there's an additional valve of Vuesens, V-I-E-U-S-S-E-N-S. It comes after Raymond Vuesens, a French anatomist of the... Well, he was born in 1641 but died in 1715, a French anatomist who also described the conus arterial ring of coronary anastomosis I was talking about. Now, there are veins that drain away from this system, and these include also the anterior cardiac veins, which actually open directly into the right atrium. If they are draining into the coronary sinus at that point in the right atrium on the front of the heart, they are called um, small cardiac veins. If they drain directly into the right atrium, then they're called anterior cardiac veins, even though the effect is similar. There's also the addition of the so-called venae cordis minimi. These are also called Thebesian veins. This was named after Adam Christian Thebesius, 1686-1732. He was a German anatomist, not to be confused with Thebes, the ancient capital at one time of Egypt. That city was known as Vasset, 
It's now actually part of Luxor today, but it was the capital of Egypt during parts of the Middle Kingdom from 2040 to 1750 BC, and the New Kingdom from about 1550 to 1070 BC. That's also the birthplace in legend of King Oedipus. It never hurts to have a little history. Anyway, now these Thebesian veins, or the venae cordis minimi, they open into each of the heart chambers, and obviously too much of that latter Thebesian veins, too much of these, too many of these venae cordis minimi, it's not a good thing, because it leads to venous admixture, so it's kind of a flaw in the system. But most of them enter into the right atrium, which is fine. And further to clarify where the veins run with the arteries, we've got the great cardiac vein, which accompanies the posterior interventricular artery. See if you can trace these on a heart as I speak. The small cardiac veins, which accompany the marginal artery of the right coronary. And if there's drainage directly, as I said, into the right HM rather than the coronary sinus, just to reiterate, we call that an anterior rather than a small cardiac vein. There's also a posterior vein of the left ventricle which joins the sinus to the left of the middle cardiac vein, and there's the small but very obvious oblique vein of Marshall running from that most primitive part of the left atrium into the coronary sinus. Actually, that's the embryonic left superior cardinal vein. John Marshall was a demonstrator in the 19th century at University College London, and he described the vein in about 1850. Um, uh, he was actually given the appointment of Professor of Surgery at UCL over Joseph Lister, even though Marshall was an anatomist. He didn't end up doing much surgery at all. Anyway, um, the relevance of this point is often not made clear in anatomy schools about this oblique vein. Remnants of the left superior vena cava as I've said, this is the left superior cardinal vein, we recall actually contribute to the formation of, or coalesce around the left brachiocephalic vein. And it results in different tributaries when compared to the right brachiocephalic or so-called innominate vein. But uh, this area can also be called the martial ligament, which is a fold of visceral pericardium which occurs there, and that carries muscular, vascular, and nervous elements, and it can in life sometimes around that vein be a source of electrical ectopia. So it's not just a random point, it's got clinical significance, and that can be of relevance uh, in radiofrequency or other techniques of ablation, and particularly relevance in about 30% of cases that recur after an ablation of muscular bands, which are usually around the pulmonary veins. And these are people getting recurrent atrial tachyarrhythmias and variants of what's called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Nowadays, coronary venous anatomy can be well demonstrated with an ECG-gated multi-detector CT scan, and you modify data acquisition times during a CT coronary angiogram. That seems to still remain, I think, superior in resolution of veins and venous anomalies to MRI. There are a few extra points that I think we can make before uh, we finish off. So a fairly short um, um, uh, podcast today. Uh, regarding the coronary sinus, that valve of Vucens, you may see it by looking into an open dried atrium, and that's located at the junction of the coronary sinus 
and the great cardiac vein. Uh, if it's prominent, it's difficult to pass a catheter here. Anomalies here are rare, but persistence, as I've said, of the left superior vena cava can enlarge that coronary sinus, and it results from a failure of the left common and anterior cardinal veins to actually regress. An unroofed coronary sinus is a direct fistula to the left atrium, and that can be a source of cerebral embolus, and the persistent left supervena cava cardiac anomalies, these things that we're talking about, they tend to cluster together. A variant can be the rather rare Ragib syndrome, where the coronary sinus is actually absent and the venous drainage can be into the left atrium with a persistent left superior vena cava. Um, I think uh, we can move on now to sort of cardiac electrophysiological anatomy and the conducting system. The native conduction system within the heart is formed from specialised populations of cells capable of generating spontaneous electrical activity, we're really talking about pacemakers, that are also able to preferentially conduct in a coordinated fashion to and through secondary centres. The sinoatrial node is not distinguishable within the heart, but it sits on the roof of the right atrium in the approximate junction of the superior vena cava and the right atrial appendage and the sulcus terminalis about a millimetre below the epicardium. And it's about one centimetre long to about half a centimetre thick. And this corresponds to the embryonic sinus venosus region. Once depolarisation has occurred, it's still a little unclear how the electrophysiological wave uh, actually travels preferentially. However, it moves from nodal cells directly to adjacent myocardium and preferentially ordered myofibrils with a few direct routes uh, to the AB node, the so-called node of Tawara, which are the shortest electrical routes between nodes. And there's an anterior tract that extends from the front part of the sinoatrial node, bifurcating into so-called Bachmann's bundle, which delivers impulses to the left atrium. There's a second tract Venkibach's pathway, which descends along the interatrial septum connecting to the front part of the atrioventricular node. And there's a third posterior, so-called Torell's pathway, from the inferior sinoatrial node, passing through the crista terminalis and the eustachian valve past the coronary sinus to enter the back end of the atrioventricular node. But this area is not really particularly well understood that communication between the SA and AV nodes, preferential communication. Excitation also normally spreads between normal myocardial cells via gap junctions. But these preferential pathways are distinct where the slow path runs from the isthmus between the coronary sinus and the tricuspid annulus with a longer conduction time, hence a slow pathway, but a quicker or shorter refractory period. The fast pathway, on the other hand, emerges higher up at the interatrial septum with a faster conduction time but a longer refractory period. And normal activity is conducted via the fast pathway, but aberrant premature beats can run via slower pathways 
during the fast refractory periods. So for interest, atrioventricular conduction times are much shorter in comparative animal studies, like, for example, uh, swine. Now, in 55% of cases, the SA node is vascularly supplied by the right coronary artery, and in 45% by the circumflex branch of the left coronary artery. We might imagine a basic function of the AV node, but its structure is a little complicated, and a range of rather complicated mathematical analyses have been devised to look at structure function coordination. The node itself, that's the AV node, is located in the floor of the right atrium over the muscular segment of the interventricular septum with impulses conducted to the bundle of Hiss. Wilhelm Hiss was a a German pathologist. Um, If conduction follows the slow pathway, then there's a longer time between atrial and Hiss activation, as I've said. The AV node resides in this so-called triangle of Koch. Koch was a, a surgeon, Walter Karl Koch, who described this region. And this, the, the triangle is bordered by the coronary sinus on one side, the tricuspid valve annulus along the its septal leaflet at any rate, and the so-called tendon of Tadaro, which is really just part of the fibrous skeleton of the heart that forms a subendocardial band connecting those two points so that you complete the triangle. And it's basically that third part of the triangle, the AV node, sitting at the apex of that triangle. The bundle branches for depolarization of the right and left ventricles then go as corresponding branches travelling via the Purkinje fibres to then spread ventricular depolarization. Now, we won't imagine that the slower AV conduction prevents the heart from racing, protecting the ventricles, really, from atrial tachyarrhythmias like fibrillation and flutter, and that's why it's it's developed in that way. The AV node is supplied, as I've said, in 90% of cases by the right coronary artery. Now, there are, in addition in some people, some direct ventricular connections from the AV node, the so-called Maheim fibres, M-A-H-A-I-M, and aberrant AV bundles like the bundle of Kent, which clinically manifests as ventricular tachycardia in the Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. The left bundle branch splits typically into fascicles to the left of the interventricular septum, and it fans out subendocardially into the left ventricle, typically about midway between the apex of the left apex of the left ventricle and that point it separates really into two major divisions the anterior and posterior branches which extend to the base of the papillary muscles the right bundle branch on the other hand continues inferiorly as if it were a, a continuation really of the his bundle on the right side of the interventricular septum and just a bit below the septal papillary muscle The right bundle branch, in a sense, is more like a cable, and it's well insulated from the remainder of the myocardium, whereas one might think of the left bundle branch more as a kind of fan-like arrangement. The bundle running towards the apex of the right ventricle is typically cut, if you look at a prosected specimen, and it's typically cut directly across 
uh, as the right ventricle is opened in dissection of the cadaver. And if you look closely at the bottom of the right ventricle, you'll see leading to the anterior papillary muscle a small, discrete, round piece of muscle, which is the so-called moderator band or the septomarginal band. The left side of the interventricular septum um, uh, first depolarizes then out to the apex, and then the base and from the endocardium to the epicardium. And that takes about 80 to 100 milliseconds to depolarise the whole ventricular mass. The Purkinje system has a blood supply coming from the left anterior descending, but the proximal his bundle can actually have a dual right and left coronary artery supply. There are a few final points Coronary artery dominance relates to the conducting system, as we've said, to reiterate, the right coronary artery is dominant in about 80% of cases and 10% have a posterior descending artery or left circumflex dominance with 10% being co-dominant. And the strictest definition of co-dominance varies a little with the defining modality. For example, there's a difference in the diagnosis of co-dominance if you're using coronary angiography or CT coronary angiography. In a co-dominant heart, a single or sometimes a duplicated posterior descending artery is supplied by branches of both the uh, circumflex and the LAD or just the LAD alone. So there is some variation of this, which is a feature of these new CT coronary angiograms or collated data. Dominance is defined by that vessel, giving rise to the posterior interventricular artery, supplying the myocardium of the inferior one-third of the interventricular septum. So even though in most hearts the right coronary artery is the dominant vessel, it's the LAD which supplies the majority of the left ventricular myocardium along with the anterior and middle thirds of the interventricular septum. And that's why LAD occlusion or stenting is so important as an isolated, um, as an isolated event or an isolated pathological finding. Now, all of this information that we have is not just a disconnected piece of data, therefore. It has important implications <clears throat> with tremendous relevance in myocardial ischemia and coronary artery bypass grafting. What's interesting is that coronary artery dominance doesn't actually affect the morbidity or the mortality of coronary artery bypass grafting procedures. But the data shows that a left coronary artery dominance is an independent predictor of more longer-term major adverse cardiac and cerebrovascular events after coronary artery bypass. So it's not just a useless piece of information or some kind of anatomical quirk or just something to study, um, it has real clinical relevance in those people who go on to uh, coronary artery bypass grafting. I should also point out that left coronary artery dominance is also a poor prognostic factor in both patients with acute coronary syndrome as well as during percutaneous interventions. And these patients are far more unstable before and during intervention than non-left dominant cases. And it's interesting to speculate on the anatomical reasons here for this. It may well be that the right coronary artery collaterals in right coronary dominant patients can limit the infarct size when the left coronary artery occludes, whereas that's less likely when there's less dominance, not only affecting acute coronary syndrome, but also the procedural risks 
during temporary balloon occlusion in left-dominant cases. So this has real clinical importance. It's, it's anatomy coming alive. During a coronary artery bypass graft, myocardial protection may actually be good enough to counter those effects when perfusion changes, which is a little different situation than percutaneous manipulation of a dominant LAD or circumflex vessel in a left-dominant case. So there may be a little bit uh, of give or leeway in those patients who are undergoing um, uh, cardiac perfusion and myocardial uh, uh, protection. The longer-term adverse outcomes in these cases... Um, I think which are coronary and non-coronary, may be due to smaller degrees possibly of collateralisation in left-dominant cases. And it may make these patients more vulnerable to progressive atherosclerosis than their right-dominant counterparts. So these become very interesting. It's interesting here to speculate on how the luck of the draw in anatomy may affect short and longer-term outcomes after percutaneous treatments, and coronary artery bypass surgery. And of course, the diligence of follow-up and secondary interventions, risk modifications, secondary preventative strategies, which could be based theoretically but aren't currently on side dominance of the coronary arteries. These could all affect long-term mortality. And I point this out here that just to show really how anatomy can have a dynamic impact on subgroup outcomes in a common social disease. Um... There are a couple of little uh, take-home points, I think, concerning conduction anomalies in general. I won't go into these. Um, uh, this is not my field of expertise, but right atrial tachyarrhythmias tend to initiate along the full length of the crista terminalis from the SA node to the coronary sinus. Examples of so-called crystal tachycardias, it's called, with other clusters commencing from the pulmonary venous ostea, the coronary sinus, and places near the mitral or tricuspid rings. With wave mapping, you can find the earliest activation in the mid-septum. There are rare antroseptal sites that uh, are ectopic near the bundle of his, and they can be ablated, but there's a higher risk there of complete heart block um, occurring if that's the site. These rare examples may actually require cryoablation rather than radiofrequency ablation. The Wolf-Parkinson-White accessory pathways are often left-sided. They're usually evident by a surface ECG, and these can be perivalvular in the free wall or septal. And about 5% of Wolf-Parkinson-Whites are multiple aberrant branches or re-entry branches. And these can be retrograde transaortic, uh, dealt with by retrograde transaortic approaches or transeptal there can be accessory pathways which sometimes cross the left AV groove obliquely near the coronary sinus ostium. So all of this can be very complex during electrophysiologic mapping, but is obviously highly anatomical. Right-sided accessory pathways tend to have actually a lower success rate and a higher recurrence rate. Our next podcast, I think, uh, will be a thoracic quiz uh, in the meantime, perhaps you might like to contribute so that we can continue well into 2024 and beyond. Uh, as I've said, uh, the site being patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, all in capitals. Um, I hope you'll like the new books that we're creating, what I call really Vade Meckhams. These are pocket books uh, 
for the different regions of the body and the aim of these is to include the ability to learn how to draw things. We think if you can draw it, you understand it and also to understand the clinical significance of a lot of this anatomy as I've tried to outline in this podcast. At any rate, uh, our next, as I say, is a quiz. Uh, Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.